don't think shit stink pink gators My Detroit players, Tim's for my hooligans in Brooklyn Dead right, if they head right, Biggie there and I Papa been school since days of under rules Never lose, never choose to, Bruce Cruz who? Do something to us, talk go through us Girls walk to us, wanna do us, screw us, who us? Yeah, Papa and- Hi, my name is Marie White I'd like to welcome you to The White Bikini And joining me this evening is my co-host, Nicholas Banton. How are you, Nicholas? Good to be with you again. Before we begin, I do want to say two things. That we do want to honor the memory of all the children that passed in the Robb Elementary School shooting. That I will pray for the families and pray that this country gets it together. And second, I do want to acknowledge the passing of Ray Liotta. Goodfellas is probably one of my top five movies. We even devoted a podcast to it. And I wanted to say prayers for his family and may he rest in peace. Henry Hill forever. This week, Biggie Smalls would have been 50 years old. He was born May 21st, 1972, which made him a Gemini. And when he turned 50, it made me think of first how quickly time has passed as also it's the 25th anniversary of his passing. But it made me look a little more into Biggie and start to listen to his music. While I'm not an expert, I do like hip hop. And I started to listen to Juicy. And I'm going to stick by and defend my point today that Juicy is the greatest hip hop song of all time. Yeah. This album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I never amount to nothing. To all the people that lived above the buildings that I was hustling from that called the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter. And all the niggas in the struggle. You know what I'm saying? It's all good, baby, baby. Uh. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack Mr. Magic Molly Ball. I let my tape rock till my tape pop. Smoking weed and bamboo. Sipping on private stock way back when I had the red and black lumberjack with the hat to match. Remember rapping Duke? The hard, the hard. You never thought that hip hop would take it this far. Now I'm in the limelight because I rhyme tight. Time to get paid, blow up like the world's trade. Born sinner, the opposite of a winner. Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner? You are uh, wading into toward waters <laughs> because there are a lot of amazing hip hop songs out there. You, you definitely are going to uh, be stepping into some uh, <laughs> in some contentious territory there. I think I should also explain that I think it captured the moment in time when it was. Yes, I think so. Sociologists refer to it as the zeitgeist, you know, the spirit of the moment, the spirit of a generation, the spirit of an era. And I think Juicy did capture that early 1990s vibe, that East Coast, New York, Brooklyn sound that was, that resonated. It resonated all across the country. And I think if you were a teen, your early your 20s, 30s even, you know, you heard that song and you go, okay, I like where this is going. Christopher George Latour Wallace, known by his stage name as Biggie Smalls, the notorious B.I.G. or Biggie. He obviously was an American rapper. He is counted as one of the greatest and most influential rappers ever. I happen to agree with that assessment. And as I said, I think he was influential from that 94, where obviously he passed away in 1997. At the time when the West Coast hip hop was dominating the mainstream, his debut album, Ready to Die, was a huge success. I'm sure you went out and bought the CD. Of course, of course. I was going to say album, but I'd really be dating myself. 
<laughs> the very next year, Junior Mafia, his protege group consisting of his childhood friends, released a group album, Conspiracy, which also led to chart success. Did you buy that CD too? I did not. I was not into Junior Mafia. I think by that point, and I think we may even touch on this a little bit, I was probably spending most of my time listening to Tupac's double album. New Hank. I bet you got it twisted, you don't know who to trust So many player-hating niggas trying to sound like us Say they ready for the front, but I don't think they know it Straight to the depths of hell, that's where the cowards going Well, all you still down, nigga, holler when you see me And let these devils Do you think Tupac was more influential than Biggie? Or they both had the same influence, that's kind of a different vibe? I think that's perhaps the latter rather than the former. I think Biggie had, I think there really were two worlds. There was an East Coast world, an East Coast vibe, and I think there was a, a West Coast vibe. And the, the rap world at that time, I think was big enough for both voices. I think, you know, you may have some voices that differ, but I think Biggie definitely captured an East Coast sound. And maybe we can discuss that a little bit. Whereas Tupac became firmly cemented, you know, Tupac and, and Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg, they had crafted um, a distinct sound that came out of California. I think I like Biggie because I like that New York grit. Yes, I think that is the adjective that's most apropos to describe that sound. It, it's a grittier, it's less melodic, because I think if you listen to Tupac, Tupac, the his rhymes are more poetic. Even even Snoop Dogg, there's a there's a smoother, more rhythmic flow to the way they rhyme. Whereas the East Coast rappers were, it's more a staccato, almost like a gunfire style rapping approach. the grittiness of Biggie because I feel that he was actually living the life where I think Snoop Dogg grew up in California. Tupac was in Maryland. I think Biggie was actually living that life. 
No doubt. No pushback on that for me. I think, you know, we talk about living the life and what that really means. So maybe let's delve into that a little bit. We're talking about extreme poverty, growing up in government projects, violence all around you, depravity all around you, deprivation all around you. It's the kind of lifestyle in which the strong, only the strong will survive. And that's the world that Biggie is coming from. Limited education, limited resources, limited access, and life is short, life is cheap, and you do whatever you have to do to survive. I think it's important to note that he was born to a single mother at the time, Violetta Wallace. Also, Biggie was known for being very remarkable in penning down dark, semi-autobiographical lyrics and was noted for his storytelling abilities. And I think when I listen to Biggie's hip hop, I, I feel like he's actually feeling what's happening and he's in actual pain. I think that's where the zeitgeist reference comes in. It's about being able to capture the emotion of a particular period in time. And I think for a lot of inner city youth, African-Americans, Hispanics, Biggie captured the, the pain, Biggie captured the fear, Biggie captured the deprivation that they felt, the lack of access, the lack of opportunity and that cutthroat mentality that they all needed in order to survive. And also at this time, you know, we've done a previous podcast on the 90s. At this point, there wasn't job for white American males as everything was starting to go abroad because of the NAFTA. Yeah, that's actually a fair point. An economic perspective, I think, you know, was it Ross Perot was famous in, I believe, the 92 uh, campaign that big sucking sound that he uh, that he referenced during the uh, debate about referencing NAFTA uh, sucking all the jobs out of the United States. And Ross Perot was right. And Biggie was a generation, even though he was only 24, whether you were black or white at that time, you assumed that you would take over what your father was doing, whether it be especially we live outside the Philadelphia area, whether it was working at Scott Tissue, DuPont, those jobs by the early 1990s were evapor evaporating and getting sent abroad. So what was normal issues of inner city living was really crushed down upon because there wasn't all of these jobs to keep these people above water anymore. Yeah, there's, an, there's a saying in the black community when white America catches a cold Black America gets the flu. And so as desperate as things were at that time for middle-class whites, it was even more desperate in the inner city, in urban America. So, you know, just imagine 20, 30 years of neglect. And that's the that's the crucible that birthed Biggie Smalls. And by 94 is when Biggie really started to take off. It was already, it was at least a good 10 years. Ronald Reagan's presidency ended in 97. So a lot happened in those 10 years and most of it was not good, especially for the economy. No, you're absolutely right. So we, you know, we have now, we have established an understanding of, of the kind of environment that gave birth to the voice and gave birth to the messages that came out of Biggie. The quest for fame and fortune, the quest for escape. People who grew up in urban America and people specifically in the inner city, you listen to Biggie and there was definitely that authentic voice that spoke their truth. But there's also an, an, another perspective that I thought was interesting. And I think this is, you have to admit that as successful as Biggie was with a black audience, you don't become multi-platinum artists until you can connect with young white America. And that's what he was able to do. 
Granted, it was through a romanticized vision of blackness, kind of the way that you would, you know, turn on the TV and watch a gangster movie or a horror movie. It was, you were able to escape into this fantasy world and then walk away from. But I think the fact that he had the talent to resonate with an audience that was not his own, I think speaks volume to the, the, the talent that Biggie possessed. Biggie tasted success at a very young age becoming the top-selling solo male rapper and artist of the genre in the U.S. And sadly, as we know, he got involved in the escalating feud between East Coast and West Coast hip-hop, and he was murdered by an unidentified assailant in 1997, exactly March 9th, 1997. Wallace, also known as Biggie Smalls, was shot from a passing vehicle. He had been named Rap Artist of the Year at the Billboard Awards in 1995. He was considered a rival of West Coast rapper Tupac Shakur, who was fatally shot in September in Las Vegas. A nationally televised by shooting Saturday night, and that story tops our world headlines. A mural is painted in New York to honor the slain rapper by a group that wants to promote peace. Rapper Tupac Shakur is also pictured in the mural. Police say they're not sure if the shooting is related in any way to Shakur's death last September. There have been no... The two rappers were rumored to be rivals, but police say they are not aware of any connection in the murders. We at Primetime have been reporting on the violence in the world of rap music. This week, that world took another ugly turn when one of the best-selling rap artists was killed in Los Angeles in a hail of gunfire. Tonight, that murder remains unsolved. March 9th, 1997. And right then, the music was silenced. I know we discussed this before we went live with this recording that we weren't going to go too deep beyond the sort of the, the purview of discussing Biggie's life, but I think it is relevant to talk about what led, what precipitated that tragedy, that double tragedy with the loss of both Biggie and Tupac. And my feelings are, and I have expressed them to you, is that I think Biggie was, if not directly, he was responsible for the death of Tupac. And I think that precipitated a tit-for-tat escalation of violence that resulted in Biggie's death. I have watched documentaries about who killed Tupac. I'm a little concerned that all of these years later, no one has been brought to justice. I'm going to defer to you on this position because I think you've looked into it a little more deeper than me. It's like the way the mob works, where they handle their grievances internally. And sometimes law enforcement doesn't really get a good handle on the perpetrators of a particular hit. And I think this is perhaps a better way. You know, we talked about Goodfellas, and I and I think if we apply that perspective, we apply those lenses to understanding the sort of the internecine violence between East Coast and West Coast rappers, I think it lends a useful perspective to understand why these forces collided the way that they did. And my sort of mildly informed position is that I think Biggie became threatened by Tupac's success. And I know, I think you say that you see it somewhat differently. I think he might have been threatened by Tupac's success, but I also think that Biggie was insecure. And I think he had a lot of people surrounding him. Like, I hate to go back to Goodfellas, but people that just kind of pumped him up to make him more insecure about Tupac. That's definitely true. I mean, both these guys were surrounded by large entourages of hangers-on, people that were just there to catch the crumbs falling from, you know, these giants. So I think it's entirely possible that when you're when you're around a bad 
crowd, when you're around a bad group of people, they can influence you to make some really terrible decisions. So I don't know, was Biggie influenced into fomenting the violence between he and Tupac? I don't know. That's that's one level of that's one level of the conflict that I I can't say that I know or have a strong feeling on. But I think it is interesting though that when it's all said and done, Tupac was shot in the studio in which Biggie and Puff Daddy were that night. I believe in, that was '93 was the first shooting of uh, Tupac. Correct. And, and Tupac it, was killed in September of '96. So there you go. And my understanding is that when Tupac was in prison, he heard from his crew that Biggie's people knew that he was coming there that night. And he felt that either Biggie set him up or Biggie knowing that this was going to happen. That the was going to happen. Lock your windows, close your doors, Biggie Smalls. My man Imp left a tech and a nine at my crib. Turned himself in, he had to do a bid. A one to three, he be home the end of 93. I'm ready to get this paper, G. You with me? Motherfucking right. My pockets looking kind of tight. And I'm stressed. Yo, Biggie, let me get the vest. No need for that. Just grab the fucking gat. The first pocket that's fat, the tech is to his back. Word is born, I'ma smoke him. Yo, don't fake no moves. What? Treat it like boxing. Stick and move. Stick and Nigga, move. you ain't got to explain shit. I've been robbing motherfuckers since the slave shit. With the same clip and the same 4-5 Two-point black, a motherfucker sure to die That's my word, nigga even try to guard. Have his mother sing it, it's so hard Yes, love, love your fucking attitude Because the nigga play pussy, that's the nigga that's getting screwed And bruised up from the pistol whipping Webs on the neck from the necklace stripping Then I'm dipping up the block and I'm robbing bitches too Up the heron bones and bamboos I wouldn't give a fuck if you're in here Give me the baby rings and the number one one mom penned it. Huh. I'm slamming niggas like Shaquille. Shit is real. When it's time to eat a meal, I rob and steal. Cause mom Duke ain't giving me shit. So for the bread and butter, I leave niggas in the gutter. Huh. Word the mother. I'm dangerous. Crazier than a bag of fucking angel dust. When I bust my gap, motherfuckers take dirt naps. I'm all that and a dime sack. Where the paper at? Did Biggie fail to tell him? And if he did, why would he fail to tell his his friend Tupac? Or the other perspective, likely perspective, Biggie was instrumental in setting up the hit. And somehow, miraculously, Tupac survived. Because here's another little bit of trivia. I think there's photographic evidence out there showing Biggie wearing the same jewelry that Tupac had on the night he was shot on the ground floor of that studio. In, uh, in I believe that was in Brooklyn, either Brooklyn or Manhattan. I, I don't know. I know it, it. It's a little speculative, seemingly hardcore facts to support my hypothesis, and I think the hypothesis of of, uh, of a few folks out there that are hip hop heads. And also, there was a rumor that Tupac was getting too friendly with Faith Evans. Well, there's that too. There's that. I mean, and I, you know, listen. This is a this is a world of very violent people with hair trigger tempers. So, you know, if, if Tupac, if Biggie rather got wind, caught wind that Tupac um, was seeing his girl Faith Evans at the time, that would have precipitated, you know, essentially what would have been a hit. And I think now when I was going through all the articles, we're on the other side now. We're, you know, Puff Daddy, Sean Combs, he's matured. 
Snoop Dogg has matured. And you, it's frustrating that these are very young men, almost boys at 24. And you think now that they all know that none of it was worth it. Snoop Dogg is doing commercials. You know, he's got what his brand of Snoop Dogg weed and he's there doing Corona commercials. And he's almost a caricature of himself. He's now this avuncular type, this uncle Snoop Dogg that's fun loving and free. And I, I can't imagine that Tupac and Biggie wouldn't have evolved into something similar. I think Snoop Dogg is, forget an uncle, he's a grandpa now. And he's best friends with Martha Stewart. <laughs> That's sort of right. It's funny, there's a there's a meme online of Martha Stewart and uh, Snoop Dogg. And the question is, one of these people went to prison. And of course, your knee-jerk reaction is to suggest, is to think that it was Snoop Dogg, but no, Martha. Martha is the fellow. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's interesting, like, you know, the word that comes to mind right now, just reflecting on, on this last few statements is what a waste. There was enough, the rap was big enough for both of them. The pie was big enough for both Biggie and Tupac to feast and be as creative as they wanted to be and evolve into these grandfather type figures that are now caricatures of themselves. You know, it's it's like when you see a movie with Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken, I don't even think he acts anymore. Christopher Walken just kind of goes on and does his Christopher Walken. There was just so much talent, so much creativity, and surrounded by this this halo, this darkness, this dark cloud of tragedy and violence. It's it's sad. It really is. And to celebrate his 50th birthday, the Empire State Building was lit up in red. So here's someone then when he passed away was pretty much a gangster. And now, and I'm happy about it, that the Empire State Building is acknowledging his influence in hip hop. Yeah, Biggie was a criminal by any reasonable standard, but he was also an incredible artist. He was an incredibly creative wordsmith. He was incredibly talented. He was uh, charismatic and charming. He was a phenomenal presence in the rap world for that short period of time in which he shone. And I think we can appreciate both elements in the same way that we can appreciate the genius of, of Jefferson and celebrate his contributions to the history of this country. We can also recognize that he also owned <laughs> human beings and recognize that fact and handle it within that domain. I think it's interesting. I think as a country, we're becoming more sophisticated. We're growing up. We can appreciate Biggie for his talent and his mastery, but also recognize his shortcomings. And I think he was a man that was stuck in a world that he couldn't get out of as quickly as he needed to. I think when you are birthed from that environment, from that toxic environment, it's hard to extricate yourself from that. Because the thing of it, too, that I, it's important to consider that that violence, that depravity and, and desperation, it was part of the fuel that helped to give him the inspiration to craft is the lyrics that he was able to craft. So Biggie removed from that environment is no longer Biggie. I think perhaps a guy like Tupac, on the other hand, Tupac, I think, was more of a poet. I think Tupac had the mind and the creativity beyond the limitations of his environment. So you can't understand Biggie without understanding the violence that surrounded him and the need and the poverty. And just thinking about Tupac, he was born in Upper Manhattan, New York. So I think there was a little more semblance, I don't want to say of money, but a little more order, though his biological father was a Black Panther. So I 
think yeah. there's more complications. Exactly. So, I mean, I think Tupac comes from a more sophisticated environment. That's a better word. Agreed. If it was an environment that provided more resources, more material resources towards his development. But I think being in that Black Panther movement and the, the kind of the kind of mentality, whether you're pro or anti-Black Panther, the, the kind of debates, the kind of rhetoric, the kinds of worldview that brings someone to the Black Panther, if you're as a child like Tupac is exposed to that, that's going to expand your mind. And I think that's what we saw in terms of the way they rapped. And I think Biggie, and we've spoken about this numerous times in our podcast, was a man suffering with trauma. The trauma of poverty is for one, the, the trauma of desperation. You listen to his lyrics, you know, he grew up in an environment where Christmas meant, you know, the best you could hope for was that the heat wouldn't be turned off and eating sardines for dinner and watching television getting lost in the world of fantasy and hoping somehow hope beyond hope that you could escape and become one of those wealthy successful people he made it happen and unlike so many thousands of other black men who had those same dreams biggie was blessed with unique set of talents that made it possible for him to extricate himself from the limitations of his environment. And I feel like with Biggie, you're much more versed in the actual genre of hip hop. But I feel that when I when Biggie's on, I know it's Biggie. There's no me having to guess who's singing it because he had a very distinct voice that no one could ever replicate. Don't disagree at all. I think Biggie, I Biggie just is is unique. He comes on, he grabs your attention and he doesn't let go. And you just sit there and listen to what he has to say. And not everyone has that ability to make you want to listen from the first lyric to the very last line. He had that ability. He had that ability to rhyme words that you want. How do those words go together? But somehow the way he did it, the way he crafted it, his wordsmithing ability was exceptional. And I think he was a man of his times. And I think he was coping the best he could with the tools he had on hand at the time which at 24 years old, thinking of myself and yourself, I'm sure, isn't the best coping skills. I don't think uh, anyone groping in that environment would be blessed with a lot of coping skills or the emotional sophistication to recognize their limitations. And I, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about Biggie was just 
authentic. He probably participated in some of the things that he talked about. I mean, not to make this a Tupac Biggie conversation, but some of the lyrics in the subsequent albums after Ready to Die, I mean, some people who delve more deeply into this East Coast, West Coast riff than I do, think that they're call-outs to the hit that night that took place on Tupac. This wasn't about someone just imagining a world around him, removed from it. This was a man who was talking about who he was, where he was, and what he was doing in that world. Do you think we're romanticizing Biggie too much? No, because I think we address his limitations. I think you know, I try to bring that angle of saying that this guy was perhaps responsible for the destruction of the two of the greatest hip hop artists in the history of the genre, both he and Tupac. So I think we can appreciate both perspectives. We can appreciate the fact that he revolutionized rap, especially East Coast rap. I think Tupac and Biggie are the, the dual kings of classic hip hop, as far as I'm concerned. And, and classic hip hop, I would define as a period roughly from the very late 80s up until about 2001. Agreed. That's a perfect time frame. Yeah, that's for me. I mean, right before that is fun and it's the stuff you, pay, you play at a wedding with white people. <laughs> <laughs> Rapper's delight. Exactly. 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 And I'm guilty. And then, you know, the rap that came after that, I just consider that entire genre of rap just mumble rap. I mean, there's some interesting stuff. You know, Drake has done some stuff, and there's some other guys out there that have done some really remarkable stuff. Kendrick Lamar, um, most deaf. I do Talib Kali. I don't want to limit it, but as far as I'm concerned, when I think of rap. I think of essentially that 1990, that 10-year, that 11-year period to the very early 2000s, that, that is the quintessential rap. That is the mental schema that I have formulated in my mind to attach to that idea. And we're about to wrap it up with two quick important points. They actually had Metro cards available in Brooklyn for his 50th birthday, which I would have loved to have. That is so cool. And the last thing that really touched me is the Grammys of 1997 is when Faith Evans, Sean Combs came out and Sting came out and sang, I'll be missing you. That was a beautiful moment. And I think perhaps that book ended the tragedy of that particular period in hip hop history. And I thought it was the generations coming together and saying, this is a new world and let's move on in peace. Yeah, I think it was apropos after all the blood and pain. That was actually a really beautiful moment. Nicholas, thank you. This was a very eloquent discussion, more on your part. I appreciate all of your input. So Biggie does matter. Absolutely, Biggie matters. And I think as time goes on, we'll be able to appreciate both aspects of Biggie and his relevance to hip hop and his relevance to American art. Nick, thank you again for a great conversation. And thank you for listening to The White Bikini. Every day I wake up. Can't believe you ain't here. Sometimes it's just hard for a nigga to wake up. It's just hard to just keep going. It's like I feel empty inside without you being here. Yeah. That's right.
pray for you every day.